This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, I speak with a mathematician. That's right, a mathematician about a Game of Thrones. Professor Podrick McCarran helps me cover John's POV chapter. This is where John gets his fancy sword. Podrick is at the University of Limerick. He's got a physics background. But I found him because he wrote an essay with a few other hard science type folks about ways to quantify character relationships and key moments in the story. So the second part of this interview is sort of me trying to keep up with someone who's in a field completely different than my own. If you're looking for my conversation with Steve, that was published earlier in the week. We're going to start dropping those Steve conversations on the weekend. And if you missed the podcast that was dropped on Saturday, I include a conversation I have with Aaron and Jim about the new House of the Dragon trailer, which dropped last week. Okay, without further ado, here is mathematician Podrick McCarran. So, Podrick, welcome. Thank you very much. It's an honor and privilege to be here. I'm very <laughs> excited about it. <laughs> good, very good. Uh, and, and am I saying your name correctly, Podrick? Yeah, so Podrick is like the Irish form of Patrick. Yeah, excellent. So this is an this is a very Irish name, in other words, or is that what we're saying? Yeah, so there's even an accent on the first A, just to you know make it look a bit more. Uh huh. Um, well, to make it look more intimidating, I suppose, to <laughs> non-native. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into my synopsis of the chapter, and then we can talk about it. Great. All right. So John and the old bear talk over John's burnt hand, the mystery of Othor's corpse, and the fact that Ben Jen is still missing. Their conversation is punctuated with the cries of Mormont's raven. Now, John is polite, but he resents that so little information has been shared with him about his father, his sisters, his brothers, and the battles in the Riverlands. Then, without much ceremony, Mormont gives John his family sword. It's forged of Valyrian steel, and it is called Longclaw. Mormont commands John to start acting like a man and prove that he's worthy of the sword. John departs to fetch the old bear's supper, but is drawn into a conversation about the sword with his friends. After that, Sam sends John to see Eamon. After a lecture about honor, duty, and love, Eamon reveals that he was once a Targaryen, the son of Maker. Indeed, he knows from pain that keeping the vows of the Night's Watch isn't easy. So, Padraig, do you want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? As tempting as the lure of chaos is, I think uh, 
should probably stick with a theme. All right, and let's hear I it. Think, I think my theme here is like regret or, you know, missing out. And this is a major theme for John or a major uh-huh. issue for John. And it sort of struck me again as I was reading this chapter about how much he, not just this chapter, even what I did before reading this, I just read all John's chapters and nothing else in between. Sure. Uh, which is a strange way to read the book. Because you you know other events are happening, but you don't you no longer know the order of what's happening. It's strange, you know, but point of view. it's strange. But John's one of the characters that I think you can do this with because you will see John from from like say Tyrion's perspective every now and again, right? But mm-hmm. I think you yeah. at this point in the story you can get most of John's narrative from John's POV chapters. Yeah, I did read two Tyrion chapters as well when I started just uh-huh. to, um, there you go. There to you keep go. the John stuff in there. Um, and yeah, his fear of, I don't really want to say fear of missing out because it's not so much a fear of missing out. It's his wanting to be elsewhere. It's wanting to be with Rob. It's wanting to help his family. Um, this is such a driver for him. And as we know from later on, especially in Dance of Dragons, this comes back to John again. And uh, ultimately, could be his demise. Well, I think regret is a great way to frame this. I don't know if it's so much a fear of being irrelevant or fear of, you know, missing some, missing the action. I think that there might be part of that too. But regret really captures, I think, a lot of what John is sensing in this chapter. Although I think it manifests in a number of ways. Mm. Um. So what is the I, what do you think that the chief regret is at this point? So he's committed himself to this life, and John is one of the more honorable characters. So he feels he's totally trapped, really. Um, but he regrets not helping Rob. He wants to help his father, and Rob has called all the banners and is marching south to help yeah. his father, or who at least who he thinks his father is. Right. Um, and he he feels he should be there. He regrets that he has taken this, made this choice sort of on a whim almost to go to, to join the night's watch. And he now is sort of trapped in this life, removed from everything he's known, unable to help out. And just, uh, he will never be, he, if reading through these chapters, he's, he's regret about the fact that he'll never travel. He'll never see the world. Um, and here he regrets not being able to be with Rob and his family in their time of need. Yeah. And I think that I think that Tyrion kind of alerted him to this, although I don't think he had ears to hear it. Um, yeah, back back in the day, I think that Tyrion was like, you know, <laughs> you know, you're making this horrible, this horribly important life decision right now. Um, but John, at that point, John had no idea what was going to happen and what he was actually going to be giving up. And this is something he alludes to in his thoughts a few times in different chapters about how Tyrion is the only one who told him the truth. Everyone right. else told him he's choosing like a life of honor uh-huh. and uh, it'd be worthwhile. And then he realized actually the Night's Watcher have almost become irrelevant and they're no longer a honorable, noble group of warriors. They're mostly thieves and barely coping. Right. So, um, yeah. He does. He does think of Tyrion's words a lot, um, and I think that probably adds to his regret. Well, on top of that, I think that he feels like I, I, until the end of this chapter, I, I do feel like he feels singular. 
He feels unique. He feels like everyone else, no one else here could possibly understand what I've given up. Yeah, and he's one of the few characters who had the choice. All of his friends uh-huh. didn't really have a choice there. They were forced there because, you know, like Darren was accused of rape. Uh, Sam's father was going to kill him if he didn't yeah. go. Um, whereas he actually made the choice thinking he was doing something, you know, for the realm, for something very honorable. And he also had sort of ideas for what he wanted from it. He wanted to be a ranger. He wanted to explore North sure. of the Wall. And yeah. now he's like Mormon's uh, maid almost. <laughs> well, let me just say this. I just, at the end of this chapter, I was thinking, poor Mormon. I mean, he, he basically gave up his family sword that was in his family for 500 years. And all he really asked for was supper. And he gets <laughs> he gets nothing. He gets he gets nothing. John is a hopeless steward. Mormont is just sitting in his 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 burnt out solar, hungry because John cannot find his way to the kitchen. <laughs> to be fair, Mormont clearly uh, didn't want the sword anymore. I suppose. <laughs> First thing yeah, he said, he didn't like, want the he, sword. He, no, he wanted found... dinner. He wanted to eat. <laughs> exactly. <really>. Yeah. <laughs> That's how hungry he was. At least worth the meal. <laughs> he was willing to give up his family's legacy for a, a damn meal. <laughs> <laughs> poor yeah, Mormon is a tough life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So back to John here. So yes, John feels regret, and I think it manifests in a number of ways. I think first off. I feel like he feels there's a been a bit of injustice in his life. Um, like, for instance, he feels like, look, no one's telling me anything. Like, I can't get the information that I need. I know that there's battles going on in the Riverland, but Mormont's not letting me know any of this. I'm having to learn this through Sam, who's not supposed to be telling me. And so I think he feels like there's a certain amount of injustice with that. But in addition to that, I feel like he feels injustice that he didn't get, be, get to be a ranger. He feels injustice that, you know, he, he thought he was going to be with Benjen and Benjen's not coming back. And and then on top of that, Alistair Thorne was being a total ass. <laughs> and John is trying mm-hmm. to defend his family honor or something. And he gets reprimanded for it. And... Mm. um. So anyway, I, I think it's pretty typical for a teenager to feel a, a fair amount of injustice. Maybe there's part of that sense that, 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 the wor- that the world is not making things easy on me that's part of his regret. Yeah, and he's clearly quite... So he's also in a lot of pain. So he, is, he mentions how he was glad he didn't see... Uh, you know, his friends didn't see him when he was in so much pain, suffering with his hand. Right. And the only time it feels he gets any comfort is when he pours it into like ice or into the snow. Right. So he's also got some physical pain, which probably isn't helping his mood. Sure. And probably isn't helping yeah. his uh, rational state either. <laughs> and he's also it. just been one of the first people in centuries to see a dead man walk and try and and have his, you know, <laughs> almost be strangled by him. So he does have a lot going on in his life, to be fair. Sure. Yeah. Sure. One of the things that John talks about in this book is that he knows he should feel grateful and excited that this really valuable and cool relic has landed in his hands, right? He's, so he's got Longclaw now. 
And it's sort of this, you know, it's it's a very tropey element of the story where, you know, the her- the hero finally gets this weapon that's going to sort of be an extension of the the hero's character or something. And yet he feels when he gets Longclaw, he feels like I wanted ice and I'm not, and I, I don't know mm. if I'm going to really be happy with this because it should have been my father that passed down a sword to me, even though I know that was kind of impossible all along, but it should have been Ned Stark passing me down ice because I've done something heroic and here this thing has happened and you know, it's Mormont passing me long claw and he's even a little bit resentful about that relationship. He's almost like, I don't care how many swords they give me. I'm not going to forget who my real father is. It's a little bit, it's a little bit pissy. I think, I don't know. Yeah. I, when I first uh, was going through it and think I also agreed, I thought, God, how petulant is John? Like I, yeah. I was in so much time for John and now he's just being, you know, so uh, yeah. Petulant is the word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then on looking back on it, I feel like I, I was struck by how almost, you know, realistic that was right. You know, he had these dreams and aspirations to, even though he knew it was impossible, he would never get ice from his father and Rob was always the true heir. He still had these dreams for something in particular happening. And he was probably more accustomed to the idea of that never happening, of him never getting right uh, ice. Whereas then he gets some sort of, as far as he sees it here, like kind of uh, a poor man's substitute from someone who's in a now almost like a father role, but isn't his father. Yeah. And he's also just been through significant trauma. And I kind of think his his actual reaction, his head thoughts are quite realistic. It's like, right, I should be grateful here. I know I should be grateful. And I just don't I really feel that happy right now. But I'll, I'll try to be grateful. <laughs> I thought that was quite... Um, I could see, I could relate to it. I can't think of any examples in my life uh-huh. where I felt that, but I, I could definitely relate to that feeling of like, oh, I should feel this right now in this moment. I know I should feel this, but I just, I just don't have it. Right. And uh, I and thought to that his was really. Credit. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, I just thought that was uh, surprisingly like realistic and relatable on a human level. Yeah. To his credit, he doesn't say it out loud, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think there's something like, like, you're probably right. Like every now and again, you know that you should feel one way. And for some reason, you just don't. You you are having, by your own judgment, the wrong reaction. Um, yeah. And to his credit, he doesn't voice it. You know, he he's processing yeah. it. Uh, but he's respectful. He's thankful. You know, he even sort of puts on a fake smile for people who he's walking past, you know, trying to congratulate him. And so he's acting the part in the way that I think that he thinks he, he ought to his Winterfell sort of lordly training coming in, uh, even though he's, he's only Lord snow or whatever. But um, I, yeah, I thought, I don't know. I I guess there's a, there's a couple different ways to read John in this chapter. And I think you probably have the right of it. I think that there's probably, we should be, we should be sympathetic for John's plight here and not sort of judging him on his worst day, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I There's he... part of me that thinks, dude, this guy just gave you one of the most valuable swords in the kingdom. 
and you're just you're just being a petulant 14 year old on this point yeah but it's something it wasn't what he wanted like you know Mm -hmm. if someone came to you and gave you like you know a hammer but not just an ordinary hammer like the greatest hammer the world has ever created you're like and you can like hammer any nail yeah exactly you're like well i mean great that that is great i know i should appreciate this (laughs) i'll throw it in my toolbox with my 14 other hammers i guess I also kind of want to do like, you know, a bad Kit Harrington impression, like, I don't want it. You know, it's like, that is a sort of, he got this thing and he knows it's great. He knows uh, how rare Valerian steel is, but it's not what he wanted. It's also a hand and a half, which he's not used to using. <laughs> and he's like, oh, God, I mean, it could have been ice. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, yeah, and he knows that it never was going to be ice. He knows that yeah. he was always sort of this ridiculous dream that he had that he would be normalized within the family and then he'd do something that would warrant this particular sword being passed to him and then he says to himself he's like what kind of man would steal the birthright from his brother meaning that in order for that story to have occurred that means that rob gets nothing yeah um, a little bit of, you know, sort of because of my day job, a little bit of an echo to sort of the Jacob and Esau story. Like, what what kind of man would steal his brother's birthright? Yeah. John a- is honorable, unlike some other, or like more so than a lot of other characters. Not sure. every other character would think of that. Uh-huh. Well, it is, It's it does sort of key in on this very, very ancient problem between brothers. If the father's blessing or the father's for a birthright or just simply like the father's wealth and land holdings, if it's a zero-sum game between brothers, then that fraternal relationship is always going to be fraught. And you see this mm-hmm. over and over and over again with these ancient narratives. And the fact that Rob was always going to get everything and John was always going to get nothing kind of predetermined that relationship from the start and because john was happy with the arrangement or at least he he you know on the surface he appeared to be happy with the relationship or with the arrangement i think that he and rob could get along pretty well but they both always knew that rob was going to get everything yeah and john made his peace with that and it of all the characters john so like in John's thoughts regularly in the last few chapters, he's thinking of like, is is my father that honorable? He fathered a bastard. He wouldn't tell uh-huh. me who my mother is. And he's got these th- thoughts about his father, but he never has these thoughts towards Rob or Arya. He's right. always so positive towards them. Um, and I think that's just a sign of his sort of loyalty to the ones he loves the most. He would never, he never resent Rob. That's just, that's the way it always that's has right. been. And Rob is like that's his right. best friend. Um, I suppose it's sort of what I find an interesting parallel is probably with his with Eddard and with Eddard and his Eddard being the middle brother. He was expected to get nothing, right? And then ended up with Winterfell, and like he is probably someone who you know didn't want to be a lord, didn't want to be a warden of the North, and ended up with all this because of what happened to his brother and his father. Sure. Um. So it's a sort of a slightly interesting parallel that John like never thinks of (laughs) what if something terrible does happen Ralph yeah yeah, yeah. I was thinking about the way that you had to quantify for your essay these character relationships I I think I read in your 
early on in your paper that you basically had to do it manually. Mm, um, yeah. Is that right? I mean, you were you were basically That's reading right, through yeah. the books, making notes about like these major named characters and like making notes about like how they are connected to the other characters. And I think you had to do all that manually. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So Cahill, one of the another Irish uh, name there, um, he did that. He was a research assistant who worked with us. Um, he, you know, he, he told us afterwards it was the dream job. <laughs> Obviously, uh -huh. it had to end, unfortunately. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, that's what he did. So um, I suppose this project started when I was doing my PhD on social networks and I was reading through other like epics and making these social networks. And at the time I was reading a Game of Thrones and I was like, God, it would be great to see what the social network looks like here. It would be great to see who the important characters are. Uh -huh. um, but I never really dreamed it would be possible because it was just so complicated and dense. Um, but then the website, A Tower of the Hand, that had all the characters that appeared in each chapter. So we sort of, initially I started with that and I was thinking, okay, well, if every character that appears in each chapter interacts with each other, then we can make a proxy for a social network. I and see. then um, I was chatting to Kyle about who's a friend of mine and um, he was doing a reread at the time. He said he'd do the feast dance reread where you read them simultaneously. Uh, so I asked him, would he get some character names uh, for characters that Tower of the Hand hadn't updated? So he started doing that. And then we just started talking about what well, it would be possible to actually list who interacts with who within the chapter. Right, right. right. Um, so that's where it kind of came from. Um, that, so Ralph... Um, He's a professor in Coventry University. Um, he has he, he convinced the department to give some money for a research system to help with gather data for lots of different projects we're working on. So then um, Cahill was hired under that to read through and, uh, these lists of characters, to read through the stories and make the list of characters and sure. who interacts with who. Uh -huh. So yeah, it was by hand, took him a few months. Uh, uh, he absolutely loved it. All right. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's times. interesting. I was imagining... I was imagining that whoever compiled that data, this particular chapter would expand that network significantly by the end because we find out what Eamon's social network really is, right? Yeah. I guess if we're just going to quantify it in simple terms, Eamon's social network before this chapter is just people we meet at the wall, right? It's just... Yeah. We we would imagine that he's got some connections in Old Town or whatever, but they're not named. By the end of the chapter, it's like, okay, now he's connected to all of these different Targaryens. Uh, was Maker mentioned previously? He, he presumably was. I would imagine so. I don't remember. Yeah, so um, the only way it will change the network at that point would be if some characters are named who hadn't previously come in. We, I suppose, it would you could do it going as the reader is told, just doing it purely like in this sort of uh, discourse time. One of the things that Eamon talks about with John is he's he's trying to sort of explain to John the difference between duty and acting out of love, and why the Night's Watch has the the particular vows that the Night's Watch has, and he uses Ned as an example. So he basically says, you know, what would your father do if ever he had to choose between his honor and saving somebody that he loves? And of course, John, John has multiple answers to this. You know, John yeah. initially, John thinks, 
well, of course, my father is the most honorable man in the in the kingdom or something like that. But how honorable can he be? You know, if you think about it. And then, of course, what he says out loud is he will always do the right thing. And what Eamon says back is he says, well, then he must be one man in 10,000 because almost every man that you'll ever meet will always choose love over honor. And in reality, what's going on here is that we, we have some kind of hypothetical conversation that's giving us an actual window into the mind of Ned Stark as he weighs Varys's options. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's weighing whether or not he should lie to save Sansa or not. Yeah, and every time Ned does lie, something terrible happens, <laughs> which is unfortunate for him. Um, Wait, say that again? Yeah, that, every time Ned lies, something really bad happens because of it. Like when he lies... All right, say to... more about that. I, I'm, I'm fascinated. So Ned rarely lies. He's always very honorable like even he'll admit truth i suppose but he won't necessarily lie and one of the first big lies i remember making is when jamie confronts him about yeah caitlin taking Tyrion, and he lies he says i he knows it. about it even, yeah even though he has no knowledge of it and uh-huh. that has pretty terrible consequences um, what are the consequences of the lie do you think well, the initial one is Jory Casal is killed. <laughs> um, right. But uh, Jory is murdered straight after that. But also, um, Jamie and the Lannisters now think that Starks are totally against them. And that really helps uh, with this narrative that Ned wanted to take over after Robert dies. That Ned was like conspiring against Joffrey the whole time. Whereas Ned had no intention of ever being king. But this gives a sort of a lot of uh, credence to that. And right. then he lies to, he takes Varys' option, he lies to say he did do this, and then that just has the worst consequence for him personally. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I always read as that, that whenever he tells a lie, something really bad happens, but it's unfortunate. That's because all fascinating. Lie all okay. All right. Well, all right. Do you consider the deception of Jon Snow's true parentage one of Ned's lies? No, I don't. Because... So that's what I kind of, I would say, is an omission of truth. Um, he's not really lying. Now, again, that has that has had bad consequences for his marriage. It's terrible consequences for John's life. Like, look at his last interactions with Caitlin yeah. before, um, w- w- before he leaves for the wall. I mean, she's uh, absolutely horrible to him. So it right. does have consequences, certainly. But I wouldn't, Ned is doing that. So uh, we're assuming, okay, maybe we don't know at this point, but we are assuming that John is the son of Lana and Ned isn't actually his father. Right, right, right. Um, but Ned is very careful about his words. Like he never, you know, when he says he's father, he means he's like, his, he, he brings him up. But uh, he doesn't explicitly lie in the book about that. You know, he uh-huh. keeps that very quiet, but that's to protect John. He knows, and even if he thought Robert's view, hatred of Targaryens had mellowed, over the, you know, 15 or however many years it was, when he talks to them, he realizes he hasn't. He hates the Targaryens even more than he used to. Huh. So he can never he can never reveal this fact because Robert will, first off, Robert's in love with Lyanna and the fact uh-huh. that Rhaegar's son is around is a disaster. But also his hatred of Targaryens will put John in jeopardy. So right. it, 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 that lie has consequences for his own personal life, his own marriage, and uh, for John's upbringing but that's sort of like 
I think that's his best option. And uh, it's I suppose it's a lie he or takes to his grave. It's not something he ever reveals. Uh-huh. Whereas the other ones, he explicitly, uh, you know, tries to deceive people. So um, this is fascinating to me because I think that usually people will say something like, of course, Ned, Ned should lie more. Like, he should play the game more. He should be more... Um, Ned should be uh, a better politician and a, a smarter chess player. And that means being sort of a a world-class liar like Littlefinger or Varys mm. or Cersei or whatever. But what you're saying is that actually Ned's problem is that he's he whenever he lies, horrible things happen. Yeah, that's my uh, that was my reading. I actually thought that was fairly I assume that was a fairly common reading of it. But yeah, when he lies, something really bad happens and He's huh. not a politician, and he doesn't have any intentions of it. Like you know, he's very reluctantly hand. He would never be king because he doesn't like you know. He really wouldn't want it. Um, yeah, yeah. And like he's well respected as a lord in the north. The north, most northern houses love him and think he's a good ruler. Um, so huh. yeah, maybe Ned should be clever in King's Landing and should not be uh, as forthcoming. But then. In general, people sort of know where to stand with him and probably don't view him as a tr- as a real threat. Well, little thing does because he's so honourable. But um, yeah, no, my that, view is that great. his, his I, lies I, are always I haven't terrible. thought about it in that way. You know, one of the things that Ned does that he views as a lie is that he thinks that he ought to tell Robert what he's learned from Cersei. He thinks. You know, Robert's on his deathbed and he makes a decision not to tell Robert who Joffrey's true father is. Yeah. And he feels really broken up about it. He feels like, oh, I can't believe I'm deceiving my king in this way. In reality, he's doing what you're calling sort of the omission of the truth or something along those lines. Yeah, he's and he's doing it to protect Robert's feelings, which is like... You know, Robert's on his deathbed and he suddenly finds out that who he believes his son is and who he believes is going to be the next king isn't actually his son. That's, uh, you know, he knows that's not what Robert wants in this situation. Well, it's a bad way to go um, out for sure, you know. <laughs> um, so even though he's honorable, he's not, uh, you know, he's not, he won't just blurt out the truth. He's not uh-huh. like a robot. Um, well, and that's and right. Still, and then this is what Eamon is saying in this chapter. He's saying, look, uh, Ned, you know, Ned must be a really rare person if he doesn't, because normally men will choose love over honor. In that particular case, Ned absolutely does choose love over honor. He he knows that probably mm-hmm. the more honorable thing to do it would be to tell Robert the truth. But out of his love for Robert, he tries to spare Robert from the truth. Um. Yeah, and that's also the same for John's parentage. If Lyanna is John's mother, his he chooses love for Lyanna over honor, which is right. You know, saying, "Well, actually, this is the son of Lyanna and Rhaegar Targaryen." That would be the uh-huh. almost more honorable thing to do. But so of Ned course, choose love over honor. That's true. He does. I think he's choosing sort of John. I think he knows John's life will be in peril because yeah. One way to look at this is that he chooses against he chooses against cat's love in this case, 
right? Cat, Cat would probably love him more knowing the truth. Uh, yeah. But it, <laughs> but he's choosing not to tell Cat, uh, of all people, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got to respect his uh, decision there. It's just you tell one person, and who knows? Cat tells her sister, and then suddenly uh-huh. Littlefinger knows, you know? Um, <laughs> right. So, sure. yeah. Um, I think... If Ned will choose Love of Her Honor, but uh-huh. he is still probably the most honorable character we meet. Um, notable introductions in this chapter. I noted that um, we hear the name Andrew Tarth for the first time, but I think that the the most important introduction in this chapter is the introduction to Longclaw. And uh, mm. Martin spends several paragraphs just describing Longclaw, describing the, you know, the the story behind Longclaw. It's, it's a very deliberate way to introduce something that's going to become key to John's story. That I noted was an introduction. Notable departures from this chapter: Alistair Thorne, we hear, has departed for King's Landing. I think Mormont is doing this specifically to put some distance between those two. Um, He explicitly says that. Yeah, right. And then uh, departure off page, but Jeremy Riker's dead. And there are a few other characters. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, That's right. Um, I did one or two other comments or things that stuck out at me. Yeah. uh, If you don't mind having a brief chat about them. No problem. Um, One was... Mormon says the wall being 8,000 years old. And uh, yeah, that jumped out to me as a long time. Did you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> uh, it it does seem like a long time. And in fact, he, Eamon talks about how the wall kind of even exists before the Andals come. Uh, mm. And you get the sense that this thing is so old, they don't really even know how old it is. Like 8,000 is a very long time, but it's also a very round number. Yeah, right? it certainly is. I, I was struck by the length of time. I suppose I had known this before, but maybe it hadn't jumped out at me. But uh, I just started like, Googling around it. I was like, okay, humans on this planet have been writing for only about 6,000 years. Uh-huh. Uh, I presume the wall <laughs> is pre... I guess it was, I don't know, maybe it would be like a Bronze Age civilization erecting it. So maybe it's not that outlandish. Right. But I was surprised I think... by the length of time. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where I think that the wall in Martin's world extends into prehistory mm, um, yeah. in the way that, you know, we do have some, uh, you know, great architectural feats that extend into prehistory. Um, and when in any anytime you study the ancient world, numbers are more, always more symbolic than they are factual. Yeah. And so I've always wondered, like, if 800 or 8,000 is like, it's just really old, man. I mean, it's really old. Right? So who, yeah, who knows really how, old, how many years it's actually been up, right? I think, like, I had forgotten that that was the last time the others or the White Walkers had been seen. I kind of had in my head that they popped up every, you know, the odd really long winter they took come up, but actually the last time they had even been seen was 8,000 years. So no wonder nobody remembers them. Like if, exactly. if, you know, we look at some, if we look at some story, like from 
you know, the ancient Egyptians of some monsters coming right. every uh, eight or 10,000 years. And you told everybody about that now. Nobody believed you. So exactly. um, that was interesting to me how far back it was. Um, that's a long time for something. Like presumably, they weren't writing 8,000 years ago either, right? So like, <laughs> sure. it's a long time for something to be committed to human memory. Right. <laughs> um. I, well, that yeah, and that's kind of Sam's superpower, right? So Sam is sort of you needed you needed someone with Sam's superpower of, you know, sort of pouring through these ancient tomes, yeah, to actually figure out what to do with these monstrous characters. And then, of course, that John is key to that story. John is the one that recognizes mm-hmm. that Sam has this power and that he's actually valuable to the Night's Watch. Yeah, no, that that's a long time, <laughs> long ass time. I did um, also think, like, what sort of, you know, there was comments about Mormon being the 997th Lord Commander. Uh-huh. And uh, I was thinking, what's a sort of similar institution that I could even relate to? So I just, like, Googled the number of popes. And apparently there has been, you know, about, or there has been something like 260 different popes. So maybe uh-huh. Martin did something like this. He was like, all right, well, the popes have been around for nearly 2,000 years, and there's 250 of them. Right. So if I multiply that by four, I get, like, around 1,000 Lord Commanders in 8,000 years. Right. <laughs> I think that those kinds of things are always a little bit difficult to quantify. And I, and I also think that Martin likes to take those kinds of numbers and like multiply them by 50, you know? Yeah. Like the, the height of the wall, for example, <laughs> the, the height of the wall or the, 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 you know, the age of the wall or, yeah, you know, things like that. Like Martin loves to take details like that and then, make them some sort of astronomically large number. Mm. Uh, anyway, I, I don't know. I, I always take those numbers as a little bit uh, turned up to 11, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to take it. Um, now, Padraig, for some reason in this chapter, there's a big deal made about Mormont's raven. Like, that, it's a very unique bird. Mm, no, that also struck me, and the previous time we saw Mormon's Raven, the last thing it said was to John to get fire. And that's what gave John the idea to set Othor on fire. This is a very curious bird. And in fact, Amon even, even points it out and says, uh, that's a, that's a very rare bird, you know, very unique bird. Um, and I, it makes me think like, what is it about this bird that, it's it seems like Martin is trying to tell me that this particular bird is special, but I have no idea where to go with it beyond that. I guess two things I thought about when I was reading that and the idea that it was the bird brought the idea of fire in there's probably standard idea i imagine is people think blood raven is warging into the bird and watching everything i, going yeah, on I have seen that theory and i i just it's like okay so one thing that we know about ravens is that their purpose is to create um communication right They're, they are a per, they are a means of communication right so yeah and and Eamon even calls it out. Eamon even says, look, you could train doves. You could train pigeons. We choose ravens. And there's a number of reasons for this. So why does Mormont have this particular raven? You could make the assumption, and maybe there's too much inferred here, but you could say, 
Mormon's communicating with someone. He, he's got his own bird and he's communicating with someone, maybe someone north of the wall. Uh, so there's that. I think that. And then I, then I feel like before. I don't know. I mean, because the, the Mormont knows in some in some sense, he knows that Craster is sending his boys out to be slaughtered. Right. Or to be mm. turned into whites or whatever. Yeah. And usually when people send ravens, somebody notices. But Master Eamon definitely isn't going to notice another raven sending messages. That's right. So maybe but, Mormont has some kind of direct line to some information north of the wall. I, that was one idea that I had. My yeah, it's possible. I never thought about that idea before. My hunch, knowing you know from the prologue in particular of A Dance of Dragons and the idea of skin changers, my hunch is that someone has warped into who's dead has warped into that. Uh -huh. That was my second thought. I was thinking, now that we know that you can get a second life, right? So if you're, say you're a warg and someone kills your human body, you could warg into an animal and then just live out your life as that animal and probably become, mm -hmm. you know, become very, very raven-like. And the other thing I noticed about this particular crow is, or this raven, is he almost like takes exception to the word crow. He doesn't like the word crow. I didn't notice that. Yeah, he does. He, I, I'll find it. He says something like, uh, "He the bird almost took exception to the." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is what it says: Sir Alistair's a knight, highborn, anointed with old friends at court, altogether harder to ignore than a glorified crow. All right, and we know that men of the Night's Watch take exception to this word. Right. Mm. Well, here's what happens next. Crow, and so that was what the crow said. And then John, John thought the raven sounded faintly indignant. <laughs> so, so that would fit with the Blood Raven narrative because Blood Raven's a former member of the Night's Watch. Maybe he doesn't like the fact that so a member mm. of the Night's Watch would be called a glorified crow. That's what a wildling would call uh, the members <laughs> of the Night's Watch. So I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, they're so, I feel a little like bit if, vague to me. I feel if Blood Raven took exception to the word crow in Mormon's Raven, that would be pretty like, you know, that'd be pretty bad spying he's doing there. Like, you know, well, surely I guess if, if Blood he, Raven is, war yes. is, is, you know, working this and trying to like get information, he's not going to like try and blow his cover by like, oh, they call me a crow of those bastards. Oh. <laughs> you know? Oh, I was thinking that maybe Mormont knows that Mormont oh, yeah. is in oh, some Mormon... way communicating with Bloodraven. I, I'm not sure. The other thing I was thinking was okay. that, and this, of course, all speculative, but um, the other thing I was thinking is that maybe this is a second life for some warg. So let's just imagine <laughs> that it is someone who's lost their human life. Uh, some some kind of, I don't know, Night's Watchman with wargish abilities. Um. You know, that that might explain why it's such a weird bird. But again, very speculative. Yeah, it is very speculative. Like, I, I can imagine people, there's probably a theory out there that, like, Benjamin has worked into it because the raven does seem to like John a lot in particular. But again, this raven presumably was being special before Benjamin even left. Yeah. And just... Uh, Benjamin, even if he is a warg, it seems like 
uh, how far is your warging? You'd have to die within probably vision of the Raven or something like that to warg into it. So it does seem like who was the previous Lord Commander before Jor Mormont? Oh, I don't know. That's good. They, I, I'm sure that others would know that. It'd be easy um, to look at. I don't know. know. Um, here's one thing I will say. I will say this: that this Raven is called out as special and sort of in the language of storytelling. Martin wants us to know that this Raven is special. So I don't know mm. why. And I, it's all, you know, sort of we can come up with our hypotheses about this. Yeah, I don't think the story has given us enough information to actually come up with uh, a good theory yet. Um, yeah. But one thing's for certain, Martin really wants us to know this particular information about the Raven. So I think yeah. it's going to I think that there's going to be some kind of reveal eventually about this. Uh, yeah, in principle, there probably should be. But sometimes I think Martin puts in all these seeds so that he has the option to later on deal with them. And then if and he, he does not do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He might be like, actually, you know what? That idea I had 30 years ago about the uh -huh. Raven being special. You know what? Screw that. I don't really like that idea. Yeah, anymore. So it may not end up having payoff. Um, I did think, so did you notice this in the previous chapter, how it's the Raven shouts fire? Like, it seems to be one of the first times the Raven doesn't say repeat a word. He actually says a word uh -huh. that's like relevant. Oh, I noticed that he said fire. I, de I did not notice. So Mormon comes in with the yeah. oil uh, lamp and then the raven shouts fire and then John thinks, oh, I can use the fire and the... He normally repeats it. He normally says all these words twice, but he also yeah. doesn't say crow twice. Yeah, whereas this time he actually, he doesn't just repeat some random word. He puts information into the system. Right. Sure, sure, sure. No, that's a good, that's a very good point. I had noticed that and I didn't make a note of it. And I thought I, at this, that point I was, I was already thinking there's something about this Raven, but I didn't, mm. rem I didn't notice that it wasn't just a, a repeated word. Right. So that's, that mm. is very curious. And I suppose the other thing is how many characters would actually know that fire can damage if fire is very bad for whites or even white walkers, like probably well, according to Mormont, the the Night's Watch should know, right? Because the should, Night's should Watch know, is yeah, like exactly. the only people on earth that even would know, and they didn't. Yeah. So the answer, I think, to your question is really nobody. Nobody knows this yeah, information so, that we've met. So then it has to go back to somebody who, like, you know, if if the show's view of the weirwood trees is accurate, that you can use them to look into the past. Uh -huh. Actually, I guess Bran does see that later on. Then it has to be a character who who has access to this information, who's been able to look back through the weirwoods uh -huh. and see, oh, well, fire is really bad for maybe it's Bran for the others. Could be Bran, yeah. And Bran being, you know, the Irish word and Welsh word for a raven, also yeah. kind of a definitely ties in it could be that would, from the future. Yeah. that would certainly uh be poetically fitting anyway yeah and all right would also well explain why the raven sorry <laughs> no go ahead say, it also explains the raven's uh you know likeness for why it likes john so much <laughs> but it still doesn't and it doesn't explain why a medieval european country would have corn this is not. I need to make no until the modern period in Europe. So I don't get it. 
but um oh that's something but I of course this noticed. is a <laughs> this is a martin narrative so it probably came from a meteor from outer space the first corn <laughs> to westeros and that's why they have corn um, valerians did it it's <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. We try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. This week's bird's eye view will be the longest and maybe nerdiest bird's eye view I've ever included. This is again is Podrig, who we met in the first half of this podcast. But this part of the interview, I'm going to get really into the weeds on a paper he wrote that attempts to quantify A Song of Ice and Fire in terms of graph theory and social networking. And um, what I'll do is I will include a link to his paper in the show notes. I think that the paper itself might go over folks' heads. I think Podrick does a great job explaining the key concepts. But I would suggest... Pull up that paper just for the graphs. I think the graphs are really fascinating. And that might enhance your experience of this interview. Hey, 
If you decide that this is way, way too in the weeds for you, I do not judge. Turn it off. Go live your life. Go listen to my conversation with Steve about Teen Wolf over at Cocoons of Horror. I promise you that conversation will have zero math in it. All right. Let's return to my conversation with Professor Podrick McCarran. You know, I did a search for Game of Thrones narrative structure and I found your essay. Yeah. And I've read it a couple times and clearly you're utilizing something called graph theory. Mm -hmm. Then I just thought, well, this is a whole lot more interesting than anything that I would have. <laughs> I would have. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say, I think it's fascinating. I'm not really sure how to explain what you're doing. So maybe we could start with just like you explaining, like, what is this essay doing? And it seems pretty innovative. Like, what what are its other uses? Like, it seems like the method has a lot of uses, but I'm wondering to hear your take on mm. this. Okay, yeah, so uses is always a controversial one, I suppose. Um, so I work in social networks. So you might have heard of social network analysis as like a sort of field people, mostly I suppose people in sociology do. Mm, but in recent yeah. years, a lot of people in physics or computer science and maths have got into it. So I have a physics background and uh, I did a PhD with Ralph in an applied maths department. So mm -hmm. Ralph is one of the authors on this. And the aim of that PhD was to look at the social networks that appear in myths now, the mythology we use, some of them weren't technically myths. They might be like an epic narrative or, a, mm -hmm. you know, might be even like the saga of the Icelander, for example, which isn't our sagas of the Icelanders, which aren't really myths either. But basically, we looked at the social networks of different narratives from different cultures and uh, wanted to compare the structure of the social networks that appear to each other. Um, so one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because there have been a lot of work on the properties of what makes a social network realistic. And there was a study on the social network of the Marvel Universe characters showing why that network was not realistic. <laughs> so uh, we, were, well, so we were like, pa oh. pause right there. Pause right there. I'm curious. All right. So <laughs> when we're talking about social networks, what do we mean? Do we just mean in a very, in very, very basic terms, we're talking about who I know and who I have relationships with, just a very basic idea of interpersonal relationships. Is that the idea? With That's social exactly networks? it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you just, if you tell me your number of friends, and not just the number of friends, you name all your friends, and then you give me all your friends, and they name all their friends, uh, I draw a network or a graph, and this is just each node as a person, and each link between people are in this case, friendship. And could I could like, include you know, my enemies it, here too, right? Exactly. Or so many times your friends could become enemies or some days uh, you like them, yeah. some days you hate them. Who knows? <laughs> I, look, man, it um, happens. It does happen, yeah. Um, so that idea of a social network is very simplified, right? You know, the idea uh -huh. that just like somebody you meet once a week, you know, going to the office or something versus like your wife, they get the same maybe... Uh, edge in that case they're both linked to people you know so it is very simplistic um and then a more complicated form is where you do weight the links and then the these weights are like represent the intensity of the relationship right and that's what um some of robin dunbar's stuff so dunbar is one of the authors in this he's an anthropologist and his idea is i don't know if you've heard of dunbar's number it'd be fairly famous it's the idea that's the average number of friends you have but it's also like the average group size humans would have 
hung out in for like so you know the way primates would have a group size like maybe it raises macaques or groups of like 20 or something uh so the dunbar theory is that the human group size is around 150 or at least that's the, the mean oh and that happens also be okay i yeah. was curious about that because at one point in the essay you were talking about the significance of the number 35 what's the difference between the significance of 150 and 135. So Dunbar's number, that 150 is like the outer number of friends you have. So within this, then you have these layers of friends. So like an average, mm. you have five people you're very close to, and then another 10, so you have 15 in this inner layer to make this, uh, these are sort of the people you'd be closest to, and then another 35 to make 50, which is your sort of like most regular context. And then you add another 100 to get this 150. And that's sort of like the average number of people you interact with each day. Now, it is an average. And if I tell you an average, people often take more meaning from that than they should, right? Because I didn't right. tell you sure. what the shape of the distribution is, right? So some people might have 100. Other people might have like 500 or something like this. It's, it's not a symmetric distribution, it seems to be. It seems to be right-skewed somehow. Uh-huh. I think people take too much meaning from this 150 sometimes. And like, mm-hmm. I know one person who like, if their Facebook friends was over 150, she starts removing people. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's not unhealthy. You should just keep removing that until it's zero in my, in my zero, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just remove your Facebook. <laughs> so would Dunbar argue that this is pretty stable from ancient times to modern times yeah. like we, we have the capacity to have like 150 acquaintances and have about 35 pretty stable relationships uh yeah so dunbar well i suppose let's say 50 stable relationships and within those there's like you know 15 that are you'd be more close to than those next uh-huh. 35 uh-huh. um so dunbar would argue that this is like human uh level it's not technology doesn't help and even some work he's done on like facebook data and online social networks he's found that this hasn't really changed so his idea is that like if you make new friends you just can't keep up with everybody firstly you don't have the time but secondly uh, you don't Mm. have the cognitive ability to just keep so much information in in your head so when it goes beyond that if you make a new friend you probably will kind of lose touch with somebody else sure right you gotta in with the old out with the newer the other way around or something. yeah and it's not a conscious thing you know you might have just moved location and some you know some friend in your old place right. you just don't see as much but if you caught up with them then of course you'd uh you know you haven't forgotten them they're just not like active in your sort of right, your sure. ego network or your internal social network you know and w- and so you've been able to quantify a song of ice and fire in a way that i have never seen done before I'm wondering if you could just explain what is your paper saying about A Song of Ice and Fire? Yeah, so um, I suppose it's saying two different things, really. It's just that the first one is that the social world created by the author is it does mirror reality. And that makes it easier, I think, for the reader to get into the mind and the frame of reference, the point of view characters. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's 2,000 characters in the story, over 2,000, that's a very hard number to keep track of and if a major character interacted and was friends with all these you couldn't keep track of that number sure. of social relationships right, right, right. but actually the way the author breaks it down each character has a number similar to that of what we observe in real human social networks and a similar right. number of interactions so that when you're in a point of view character's head you can imagine their social world and you know the connections between their other characters mm-hmm. because he doesn't go beyond what you can cognitively remember yeah so someone like sansa is going to 
she's not going to know every single person in the story. She's going to have yeah. it's it's possible for Sansa to like sort of hold 150 names in her head, basically. <laughs> but then yeah, the number 35 is significant because those are the numbers that she's actually going to have an actual relationship with or something like that. Yeah, be more close to an average. Yeah. OK. And that and... mirrors the way that yeah, people will... in the real, real world have a social network, right? Yeah, she's got strong ties with some characters and weak ties with some characters. And as you read it from her point of view, you can you remember kind of which is which. You remember her mm-hmm. interactions with other characters. It doesn't get overwhelming because she okay. doesn't interact with everybody. It seems like you're able to quantify this uh, using, and if we could just define three words, uh, three terms mm-hmm. here, that would be helpful. If you could define degree centrality and betweenness so what is what does it mean to say a character has a lot of degree so the degree is the number of other characters that interact with in the story so if you Uh if you think of your number of friends on a social network site that would be your degree on that social network okay and so if john has a degree of 200 that means he's interacted around 200 characters in the story Mm. and then the betweenness centrality this is um, a network property so it's how many if you trace all these shortest paths between any two characters it's how likely a character is going to lie on that so john having a high between this means that if i uh, pick any two random characters and draw the shortest path between them john will likely lie on that path okay centrality we just they're both measures of centrality so just degree is one type of centrality between us another type in the appendix we talk about like closeness page rank eigenvector these are all our measures of how central a character is in a network okay interesting for Hmm. example john doesn't know daenerys at this point in the books or any point in the books um and so she will never feature in his chapters, maybe towards the end of Madonna's of Dragons, he's heard of this dragon lady or something. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, of the 2,000 or so characters named, most of these characters haven't heard of most of those 2,000 characters. So right. when we take the 14 point of view characters, now there's more than 14, but the 14 point of view characters who are like more central, so like leaving out, you know, the Soiled Knight, i.e. aerosol character, someone like that, um, leaving out the non-named point of view characters for mm-hmm. their chapters. Um, the average number of people they interact with in their own chapters is around 150. So that was quite surprising, okay? We didn't expect it to be really close to Unmarked Number. So it just so happens that, like, the way Martin constructed these characters, their social networks are very similar to our own. And they all, within these, they have, like, John has more intense relationships than other ones. He's some people he's just met once or twice, or from our point of view, at least. When we read the books, we only come across interaction briefly. These other characters, like Sam, who he's interacted with, didn't feel much stronger to. So um, his own internal social network is very similar to uh, what we observe from real humans. All right. This is fascinating to me. So let me just throw a different problem at you. One of the things that struck me about your essay was the way that you kind of illustrated this network of relationships. Hmm. And it seems like characters that I would sort of associate, I would think of as, okay, this is a main character, like Ned Stark in the first book, that Hmm. that Ned Stark seems to have the most 
connectivity. How do we, what's the word that you used? Degree would be the number of people they actually interact with. And then between us is sort of like quantified from how much information they have Uh on the network. Yeah. Okay. So it was interesting to see that Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark are sort of, they're among the most central characters. They have the most interpersonal relationships, or at least they have the most occasions to interact with other characters within the book. Would that be right? Yeah, I suppose that is right. Uh, So degree, it just literally is the number of people they interact with. So if you look at that list of degrees, so we see John, he's interacted with 214 people in Mm. the story. Now, maybe it's not necessarily interact with, but they might have had like written a letter to each other or something like this, you know. Um, And then Jamie is also fairly high. And Rob is pretty high as well, actually, in that list. Um, but the between us and how this works is it's like you draw this entire network. So like, you know, like your diagram with all your nodes, all your edges. So it looks yeah, like some yeah. kind of big, large web. And then you look at all the paths between every possible pair of nodes. So somebody, if if someone wanted to transfer information as quickly as possible through the network, uh, you would see how many other nodes that would pass through. And that's what the betweenness is measuring. So John having a high betweenness means that um, partly him and Daenerys will always have a kind of, or actually not Daenerys, uh, because Barrison Selmy was in uh, King's Landing and then is in Esos. He has a very high betweenness. Now, it doesn't really make sense um, in, in a static snapshot because if John wanted to get information to Barristan, uh he would have to go through a large number of steps. But when you draw mm. a static network of everyone who they've actually encountered, mm-hmm. because John is connected to Ned, and Ned is connected to Barristan, and Barristan mm-hmm. is connected to Daenerys, you can very quickly get these short steps. So therefore, in in the static snapshot of just everyone they've met, Barristan is very high mm-hmm. between us. But this is purely because he's one of the very few characters in both King's Landing and Esos. And anybody in the north who hasn't really interacted with anybody else, well, they actually interacted with everybody in King's Landing in the beginning of the first book. Right. Okay. So, so that's kind of between us is telling you. Right. Yeah. So if, if listeners are wanting to imagine this, I mean, they could look up your essay, I'm sure. How, how would they find your essay <laughs> if they wanted to look it up? Um, so I literally put narrative structure of Song of Ice and Fire into Google there when I wanted yeah. to get it before talking to you just to yeah, read yeah. over to make sure what we did. Yeah, sure. Um, so one, yeah, one P- of your Penny graphs is, the... is sort of like, uh, I mean, it's a little bit like, uh, spider webs in, in a sense. It's yeah. like if you, if you imagine a character, the closer to the center of the spider web, that person's going to connect to more of, of the other characters on the web, but mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you about the issue of centrality. What's the difference between degree is just how many webs you actually are touching. Um, yeah, how many other characters? Yeah. Yeah, right. And but then, what would centrality measure? Yeah, that's sort of, so. That's basically if you tried to pick draw a path between any two people on that network, the higher centrality, the more likely they'll appear on that path. So, like, if, you know, you wanted, if Theon wanted to give a message to, uh, you know, Beric and Barian, and he's like, right, well, I don't know Beric, but I do know mm. that uh, Ned is going to King's Landing. So maybe I'll just give this letter to Ned, and if he comes up and meets Beric, then mm. he can give it to him. Uh, so basically, that's all it's telling you, how 
sort of how many paths central paths that right. lie on between other and characters. because ned is so central if he wanted to get a letter to really any character on the board it'd be the probably the fewest amount of steps between yeah so by the end of dance with dragons john is the highest and this is because uh-huh. john is one of the only characters who interacts with a significant number of wildlings so if daenerys uh-huh. decided she wanted to get a letter to val <laughs> Sure. you know she's never met or never even heard of right, right. Um, then based on the characters we know the shortest path for her to send it through would be through john all right so there are 343 chapters in the first mm-hmm. five books 2007 characters were identified yeah. and 1806 interact with each other at least once Mm-hmm. Right. So how would this compare, like if we were going to compare this, what Martin is doing with his characters and the social network with the characters, how would this compare with, you know, another, an ancient epic? And how would that compare to what we would expect in sort of a modern social network situation? So that's a great question. So um, Martin's narrative is probably a bit more dense in terms of number of connections characters tend to interact with more characters than they would have in some old epics mm. interestingly the properties of his social network look more similar to that of say the sagas of the Icelanders, which are kind of stories of like the people you know people settling iceland and uh, mm. they are more stories of a people really even though a lot of them are centered in the protagonist and are about that person. They still are more a story of people than being sort of like, you know, like the Odyssey, for example, where you've one character traveling around. Um, so, yeah, the, the structure looks more like Saga of Icelanders than it does, like, say, Beowulf or uh, the Irish um, epic, the Tom Bakulia. Um It would be more similar than that, but that's probably because it's just got more emphasis on lots of characters rather than a single character. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of modern social networks, uh, the kind of argument we're making here is it doesn't really look that different. Um, the problem is it's very difficult to get good social network data, you know, so like if you you're always taking snapshots, you're always missing stuff. So like one of the advantages of Song of Ice and Fire compared to the other uh, narratives we looked at is we know of these POV characters, who they're interacting with, and we know their full social network. So even though we've only got a partial snapshot, mm. um, at least those 14 or actually 24 characters, we know pretty much what's going on in their lives, even if the other uh, nearly 2,000 we don't know. Um, so like uh, some of the work I've done in the past has been on, on the mobile phone data. And this mobile oh, phone network, it um, the operator covers one-fifth of the country. So if I... I'm on the same operator as someone. I have all the information of those two people. But if I then ring in another friend of mine who's on a different operator, uh, then I only know who people on my operator contact them. So I, I will only know like approximately one fifth of the actual uh, interactions, what's happening. So it's very hard to get proper social network data, say what social networks really look like, but that's kind of what my research is mostly about. And, um, Hmm. Uh, the, the structure of the social network in A Song of Ice and Fire is more similar to the real world kind of social networks than something like the one in, that appears in Beowulf or uh, right. I'm trying to think uh, maybe or the Odyssey, in fact. Mm-hmm. And then the second but element, maybe not the Iliad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. All right, no, that's good. That's good. 
<laughs> the second aspect of this, I, I'm actually really fascinated with this first aspect. I think that there's there's probably a massive amount of applications for this and, uh, across a, a, a number of disciplines. Mm. Uh, but the second aspect of the paper, which probably has, considering where this podcast is in book one, mm. we're sort of contending with the death of Robert and we're about to contend with the death of Ned. Mm. And so the second part of your essay tries to quantify how Martin distributes major deaths in his books. Yeah. And it seems like you're tracking those along two different spectrums. One is what we would call something like story time, and one would be called discourse time, right? Do, do I have that right? Or that's right. It's, yeah, that's right. Okay. So what's the difference the between times... story time and discourse time? <laughs> So the amount of times internally when we were working on this article that we got confused as to which was which, mm-hmm. uh, we renamed one of them ourselves just so we could not make it up. But uh, we, these were actual terms from, um, I guess, narratology. So that's why we stuck with them. So uh-huh. if I remember correctly, um, so discourse time is how the story is actually told. So, for example, in A Feast for Crows, one of the very first chapters is Sam leaving uh, the Castle Black and he's a conversation with John. And then one of the first chapters in Dance with Dragons has the exact same conversation, but this time from John's side as he's sending Sam away mm-hmm. to the Citadel. Um, but they take place like 150 chapters apart. Okay, so that's uh, the discourse time. It's right, how so the reader the experiences those... Sig- it, it, with a significant gap, right? Yeah. If you but read in terms of when it came out, in eight years yeah, apart. Yeah. <laughs> right. Sure. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> and then, uh, I mean, but even if they were like sitting down for the first time with, you know, with these books and just reading from start yeah. to finish, it's a significant gap. Whereas is, yeah. story time would be okay. Let's based on the facts and the details of the story, what kind of timeline can we come up with? So to imagine yeah. kind of these characters living in some sort of realistic timeline. Yeah. So story time is basically the chronology of like the chronological order of events. Uh-huh. So right. um, we know it, it takes place over a few years and uh, some nice man, private major on Reddit, actually assuming he's a man, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> some user on Reddit, uh, private major has, a, and not just him, a lot of people on the, uh, or, uh, Song of Ice and Fire, um, they put together this timeline and that's where they tried to put all the chapters in order of events and they actually even put a date very helpfully on each chapter. Now, some of them, they're not exactly sure on. They don't sure. know, like it could be a few months yeah. apart, but they've got a pretty reasonable guess for the actual order of events chronologically rather than, uh, you know, the sort of discourse time. Sure. Okay. So you basically came up with, well, you're borrowing a timeline for the sake of argument. We're, like, we're going to say this timeline is probably pretty close. Yeah. Um, then you can measure discourse time simply because you can quantify pages and how many words stand yeah. between these two events, right? Well, we literally went by chapter number. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it, so all right. So, give me wrong. Yeah, right. okay. so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but here's how I understand it. It looks as if, if you were just going to go with the timeline, that how these deaths occur on the timeline 
are almost predictable. There's a pretty standard interval between deaths. But in terms of discourse time, to the reader, these seem really random, like really randomly distributed events. Or do I have that yeah. wrong? That's I... absolutely, no, that's absolutely correct. And that okay. was another big shock to us when we were studying this and we were looking at this intervent time. We looked at a few different things like, you know, between when characters meet deaths. And I, I can't remember what the third thing was. And we were shocked when we saw this. It was that like, it looks almost entirely random when you plot it just in this discourse time. You just look mm-hmm. at the how often people get killed and it's like you're reading and it's like you know it's to the reader it is severe it's, it's a geometric distribution so it's like a random mm-hmm. distribution uh whereas then when you actually order it by date um it looks more like this what's often called burstiness um this how human activity tends to work you know kind of you significant you periods where nothing happens burstiness is the term yeah um it's like like the quality <laughs> of being bursty <laughs> the state of being yeah bursty? basically i suppose it's not so much the state of being bursty it's just how humans apparently uh how their activity works they were uh-huh. they're very bursty you know you'll do nothing for you know eight hours while you sleep I, and then get up and you do my, loads of things and then you'll sit down changed. and do nothing <laughs> <laughs> i'm never going to view my life in the same way now that i know I have the the option of being bursty all right so <laughs> exactly, yeah so human so behavior these... generally is <laughs> bursty yeah Okay, it's bursty. <laughs> human behavior is, is bursty is what the term is. Yeah, we didn't make this term. Of, actually, I don't even know if we use the term burstiness because we don't really like it that much. Mm, okay. <laughs> Probably remove that bit from the podcast in case some of the scientists are listening to me. <laughs> I like it a lot. So, so basically, to the reader, following the story and discourse time, these deaths seemingly happen at random. And because of that, they are more shocking. They're more affecting to the reader. Would that be correct? Yeah. So I guess we can't really make that latter claim, right? But that is kind of what we infer. Um, it Because it does appear more random than if it was laid out chronologically. You know, mm-hmm. suddenly there's a big event happening where loads of people are being killed. And it just gets, it probably gets less shocking. But also because there's some, you know, maybe big event or battle mm-hmm. happening the idea of people being killed, maybe you're more, uh, you're, or you're less at odds with, say. Whereas okay. the way it's laid out, it right. seems more random, yeah. Now, I don't know if this got covered in the paper and I missed it, or maybe I just, uh, I, I, I dozed a little bit, I'm not sure. But let me, th- <laughs> let me throw an idea at you, okay? So Ned has a lot of, in this first book, Ned has a lot of centrality. Ned mm-hmm. has a lot of degree. So right, so he he has a lot of connectivity with other characters. Uh, there's a lot of characters that are directly connected to him. Um, and so my what I would say is that his death, if you imagine like a major ripple upon that particular part of the spider web, yeah, the vibrations of Ned's death are going to affect the most amount of characters that i've met in this story what do you think about that i think that's yeah i think that's accurate um we we didn't really look into that and we did sort of uh think of it if you look at our figure three in that we sort of plot 
uh, what we call the full network and survivor network. Survivor network is sure. just people who are left alive. And in some of the other quantities, you can see fairly big changes. So I guess what maybe that is reflected. I don't remember. Do you know what chapter number Ned dies in offhand? It's probably like 50 something, is it? Um, yeah, I could find that pretty uh, quickly. Give me. Yes. Okay. This is chapter 65. Okay, so if you have the paper open in figure 3b, we're plotting this assortativity. So this is basically uh, a measure of how closely people agree, how similar it is to the people they interact with. And you can see towards the end of the first book, so just after chapter 50, you can see there's three spikes in the green one. Uh -huh. uh, so each yeah, of yeah. these are corresponding to something big happening, most likely some major character dying. So the first is probably Robert, and the second is probably Ned. Um, so I think these are characters. Okay, this is interesting to me. I think it's probably Viserys dies first. Okay, so that could be the... Yeah, so that's so, Danny's brother, and my guess, and I was going to yeah. make a point about this, my guess is that Viserys' death, because of its low degree and low centrality when it happens it's i guess i mean i'm making a leap now but i would say because of the low degree and low centrality of this particular character viserys's death is probably a, a bit less shocking than when someone like robert or ned dies because those characters are more integral to the social network than viserys is at this point yeah i would say when Viserys gets killed, the, that figure three B you wouldn't even notice. I would say it barely changes. Say, um, I can't imagine it, he he's not that important. So it's not that he's not that important to the story. It's just that in the social network, uh, pretty much everyone he interacts with already we have some other connection to. Like Jorah mm -hmm. is there, Danny mm -hmm. is there. Mm -hmm. So his death probably doesn't really change anything because he doesn't have a particularly high degree. Um, whereas Ned and Robert have very high degrees, so their death will change this, uh, what happens in the Survivor Network more significantly. Right. This is interesting to me, because it feels like, if I was going to think about who the most important characters are, I would put Danny pretty high, and yet, and I would put Robert Baratheon pretty low. I think that mm. his death has more impact than his life. In terms of the way this story yeah. is told, right? Absolutely, yeah. He, um, but at this early coming. stage, <laughs> sure. I think at this early stage, because I let's say I'm just going with book one. I don't know how important Danny is going to become. You know, I might have mm. guesses or whatever. And just in terms of her centrality and her um, her degree at this point in the story, Robert looks so much more significant a character than she does yeah from the social network point of view definitely right so i guess i'm trying to try to find some kind of correlation between the centrality and the degree and the way that i experience the death and it could be that there's there's just a lot of factors that i'm not considering in the in the way that i'm trying trying to draw the relationship yeah i think it probably is more meaningful the more it goes on because mm. at the the longer you're in the story, the more time you have to meet. So, like whenever you say degree, I literally just mean number of interact, number of people they interact with. So, I'm just reminding uh, that because so people don't have to continue to remember the word degree. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> sure, um, sure. yeah, yeah. The 
number of characters interact with that builds over the story so by the time we get to book three or four mm-hmm. um actually we even see in one of the first figures that that doesn't really stop growing the number of characters keeps increasing all the way through the book yeah. um you kind of expect it to stabilize but like i mean it just he just keeps adding new characters all the time yeah this so is, by the time this get is a, part late, of the problem i think <laughs> <laughs> this is how are you going to finish this thing if you keep just adding new characters right? yeah you would expect like a kind of normal like maybe other series that are like five or six books in that like the first figure the figure B you'd expect at some point that would level off like the number of characters it would stop growing uh-huh. whereas actually it seems to grow almost even faster by the time a feast for crow comes in which yeah, right, is what happens right, right. Um, so I think in terms, as, as it goes on, because characters have had more time to build up these number of interactions, relationships, then it will have more impact on the network. And as a result, it probably will have more impact on you, the reader, because, uh, it's a bigger change to everyone else's social okay. network. Right, right. Whereas a character dying fairly early on, it doesn't have the same impact because we don't know, like, you know, if you were saying about, if you don't know how to, important an is going to be in book one, um, but you do know, like, by book five. So there's going to be a big difference if she was, if she dies at the end of a Game of Thrones, as opposed to if she, if she dies at the end of uh, Dance of Dragons. Sure. So I think looking at the early part of these graphs is a bit, or these figures is a little bit uh, maybe misleading because yeah. we are just talking about the social network, not so much what this means to the reader or the importance of the actual story. Right. Well, I think that you do kind of hint in that direction toward the end of the essay. Right. Mm. It seems like you're saying, uh, is there a way to quantify this particular story in a way that will explain the success of the narrative, right? The success of the book series or the success of Mm. the story, right? And I think that one of the arguments that you seem to be making, correct me, please, because these social networks have a sort of mirror realism uh, to them. Mm. And the and because these deaths seem to happen at random, there's something about this story that feels more real than other stories of the similar kind. And so it could be that the randomness of death actually has a greater impact on the reader. And that mm, might yeah. and that might tell us something about the success of the story. Yeah, no, that is true. We do sort of hint at that in the conclusions, um, you know, conscious of the fact that we can pretty much say whatever you want in the conclusions. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let me ask you this question. <laughs> All right. So when we were first going through this series, um, one phrase that got thrown around a bit, and I think it's a probably a pretty messy term, but we mm-hmm. came up with this term as sort of a fandom. We came up with this term narrative armor. Right. Have you ever have you ever encountered this term? I presume this is the exact same as plot armor, is it? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plot armor, yeah. narrative yeah, armor, something armor, like that. Yeah. And the idea here is that okay, well, look, Martin has to bring Danny to Westeros. I mean, that's just yeah. part. Of, all of the plot is pointing to this particular event where this yeah. particular character is going to come to Westeros. It's it's just too much. There's too much pointing in this direction. And so it's very, very unlikely that she is going to leave the narrative before yeah. that particular and a resolution can happen. Yeah. So it's a very non-scientific way to think about these things. Uh, but I wonder if your 
method could help me quantify something like plot armor. Like in terms of John, like, like let me just use an, a particular example. So mm. John, we've established using your data that John is one of the most important characters in the social network. Yeah. Right. And we can quantify this in a number of ways, right? We can, we can quantify with this with how many people uh, John is connected to uh, the strength of the connection. Yeah. So then at the end of book five, John gets stabbed a bunch of times. Right. And mm. he's bleeding out in the snow. And so then the question is, does John have too much plot armor to actually die? So I think this is something we can't quantify because it's something that Martin, as an author, consciously sets out to break. You know, his criticism, uh, of one of his criticisms of like Lord of the Rings is that like Gandalf just stayed dead, you know? And that's kind of what he wanted to do with Eddard. He wanted to have this main character and then have him die at the end of that first book. And then people continue from there. So from our method, I don't know if we could actually quantify plot armor, but I think Martin is somebody who will go above and beyond to try and make sure. Like, it does seem like for certain that Daenerys has to come to Westeros, otherwise so much of that seems pointless. But you never know. Euron could come over and murder her, steal her dragons, and then invade Westeros with, you know, three dragons, and Tyrion might just back him up for the crack. Like, you know, you don't really know. Like, I'm sure Daenerys will get there, not just because of the show, but it just... I firmly believe that's what where Martin was going. Yeah, I've always right. believed that Martin wanted some kind of connection between John and Daenerys because of you know John having like sort of snow and Daenerys being fire based. Right. Song of Ice sure. and Fire is always my reading of it anyway. Mm -hmm. But I think Martin is an author who would just like if that's how he. Okay, it, he had some plan in his head initially. So if people say, "Oh, this is where he's going," he's not going to change that plan. But at the same time, he's not going to—he's going to try not to give characters too much plot armor. Or if it looks like they have so much plot armor, I uh -huh. think he's the kind of author who would consciously kill them just to sort of show that no, look, anything can be done. You have no idea where this is going. I'm trying to break all these tropes here. All so right. that's why I think it'd be very hard to quantify for Martin in particular. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I th I think that there might be some connection or not some relationship between centrality and plot armor. Do you think? Am I way off here? You could be right. Um, uh, so one of the things that surprised me about the centrality list, let me see if I can find it, pull it up again, is that Varus I always expected to be higher. Um, you know, I'm kind of surprised that he's not like up in the top because you just expect no we actually don't show them all i can't remember if we show them on the appendix or not we just skipped we just well i think that one of the here here's one of the things i think that we assume or it is implied in the story that varus has all kinds of connections and relationships all over the place but they are not explicitly stated so i think that you're mm -hmm. hard pressed to quantify his connectivity yeah that is a great point thanks for uh, saving me there too <laughs> I <shouldn't laughs> <know that. laughs> I, look man i'm really fascinated I, I, i'm really fascinated by this i've never encountered this kind of methodology and uh, it, it's exciting